You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm back to being a mostly mobile human being, so that's good. Always stretch before exercising over the age of 30, everybody. Also, I did a volunteer thing for a cancer event on the Paramount backlot last weekend, which was really cool. So, you know, not a not a bad week after the horror show that was the week before. No movie theater movie reviews this week. I tried to drag myself to go see Elvis, but was never in the mood to sit in a nearly three-hour movie starring Austin Butler, so I didn't. Maybe next week. On to this week's topic. This week, proof that friends don't always make the best co-workers as we go over one of the worst examples of paying it forward. This happened when Warren Beatty secured funding for his friend and script savior Elaine May to make a film she never could. What happened next? was pure chaos. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be... Telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth. Telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, you've got bitter herbs. In 1981, Warren Beatty had Hollywood in the palm of his hand. The 44-year-old actor was one of the world's biggest movie stars, claimed to have slept with pretty much every woman on the planet, and had just gotten a boatload of acclaim thanks to his directorial debut, Reds, a film detailing the Russian Revolution that he'd also written, produced, and starred in. Beatty would take home a Best Directing Oscar, too, for all that trouble. The worst-kept secret in town surrounding Beatty's feet was that none of it would have been remotely possible had it not been for Elaine May. Elaine May was a 49-year-old East Coast transplant, the daughter of showbiz folk. She had made a name for herself as one half of Nichols and May, a celebrated stand-up comedy team that had a successful show on Broadway in the early 80s. May was considered by many to be a comedic genius, if a little overly eccentric at times. She'd even sat in the director's chair, once for 1972's The Heartbreak Kid, which had done okay, and then 1976's Mikey and Nikki, which did not. 
By the late 1970s, May was working as a writer, often punching up scripts, which if you remember from the writing episode from like a million years ago, that is someone who takes a meh script and in theory, punches it up, makes it better. May also had a co-writing credit on Beatty's 1978 hit film Heaven Can Wait, and Dustin Hoffman would later claim that she had been the one to punch up his film Tootsie. May had also saved Beatty's Reds. She had done major rewrites and finessing on the script, for which she received no on-screen credits, and she was also a huge part of molding the film in post-production. It's a lot of work for no credit. Beatty knew, every time he looked at that shiny Oscar, that he owed her one, and planned to pay it up in a way only the rich and powerful really can. Beatty was going to convince a major Hollywood studio to finance May's next film. This well-intentioned act would have mammoth repercussions. Beatty knew that whatever film ultimately got made by May, that he would be attached as the producer. He felt that one of the things keeping her from becoming a prominent director was that she'd never had a good producer backing her up. He thought he could be that producer. Beatty would also star in the film because, well, of course he would. The story for the film that would eventually be called Ishtar began taking shape during a dinner party with Beatty and Burt Fields, their mutual agent, during which May mentioned she would like to do her version of a Road to film that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope had made famous primarily in the 1940s. May wanted her version to be set in the Middle East and star Beatty and whomever the other guy would be as a mediocre songwriting duo who end up in Morocco and get caught up in an international situation. Situation. May also thought it would be a good idea to have Beatty not play the ladies' man, but rather the bumbling fool of the two. So, who would play Beatty's partner then, aka the ladies' man in the group? Well, that ended up being the second dude that I've mentioned in this episode that owed May a favor for fixing his movie, Dustin Hoffman, though he would take a little bit more convincing to sign on to the film. As May got to work on a script, Beatty met with friend and head of production of Columbia Pictures, Guy McElwain. According to an Ishtar crew member, Beatty told him, quote, anything she wants, period. That's my negotiating position. The project was pitched as a Beatty-May collaboration with the possibility of Hoffman's participation. Since both men were at career high points, this was a very pretty package. But McElwain was a little weary. He'd heard stories of May's eccentricities and proclivity to shoot a Michael Cimino-level amount of film, and also knew that if she, Beatty, and Hoffman were all brought together to make this film, the trio's intense perfectionist qualities could start butting up against each other's. It was actually quite the conundrum. You see, if Columbia funded it and the three of them got out on location in the Sahara, if they got their way to shoot in the Sahara, and then just started going for each other's throats, it would be hard for the studio to intervene in a timely manner, and they could stand to lose a lot of money as a result. Or they could pass and the film would go to another studio because somebody for sure was going to fund this. If the film ended up being a huge hit, Columbia would have to sit back and watch what could have been. The studio had just been purchased by Coca-Cola, and that meant answering to a board if they slipped up this epically. McElwain eventually conceded and decided to fund the film, mostly due to Beatty's perseverance. 
And like I said, getting Hoffman to commit turned out to be a bit more difficult than they thought it would be. He had misgivings about the script, believing that the move to Morocco messed up the story's trajectory that had begun to develop when the characters were still in New York. Why couldn't they just keep all of the action there? According to Hoffman, Beatty told him privately, quote, You saw those movies that Elaine did. I'm going to be there and I'm going to make sure that she has the room to do her best work. He was saying, don't worry about the script. Go with her talent. Go with us. Hoffman, despite being quite the no-man back in those days when it came to choosing roles, eventually signed on due to feeling as if he also owed May, but also he later claimed it was due in part to Beatty's insistence. The trio of May, Beatty, and Hoffman would receive a combined $12.5 million to make this film. And that's not counting the budget. Nobody knows for sure. The budget of this movie ended up being $51 million, which was far, far, far beyond what it was supposed to be. The cast and crew all fell into place, including Isabel Ajani, Beatty's girlfriend at the time, as the main love interest who spends most of the movie disguised as a boy. She and May would be in contention with each other throughout the entire production. With all of this silver-tonguing he'd done to procure financing and Hoffman and all the other stuff, Beatty didn't foresee what would happen when they got to the desert. The sand, sun, and heat can do crazy things to a person. Given the three personalities that were leading this film and the dangers that, like I've mentioned, could yield if they started fighting, coupled with keeping costs down, Columbia more than likely would have preferred that Ishtar be shot locally. But, as it turned out, Coca-Cola had frozen financial assets in Morocco, which had to be spent there, so the studio didn't have much of a choice but to approve the Sahara location shooting. In theory, everybody won. Coca-Cola spends their locked-up money, and they in theory get a blockbuster movie in return. A shooting schedule was soon put into place to shoot in Morocco for 10 weeks and then finish up in New York. Just a few problems with that. They wanted to shoot in a region entrenched in significant political turmoil at the time. On October 1st, 1985, for example, weeks before shooting was set to begin, Israeli warplanes had bombed the headquarters of the Palestine Liberation Organization. A week later, four hijackers from the Palestine Liberation Front seized a cruise ship and threw a Jewish-American man overboard after shooting and killing him in his wheelchair. Piling on that, the Moroccan government was involved in a conflict conflict with militant guerrillas. So in all, probably not the best place for a Jewish director and a famous Jewish movie star to be, but they ended up shooting there anyway, and from what I was able to find, they lucked out and nothing horribly egregious happened to them there. On a making the movie front, the region was also not prepared to welcome the likes of a full Hollywood film production. It was a poor nation, so there was a lot of interest in jobs, but since they were not used to production life, not a lot of follow through. For example, a local group of people promised that 300 camels would show up when they needed far less than that for a scene they wanted to shoot, but when the day arrived, zero camels arrived. Speaking of camels... <laughs> One specific story from this film has become a part of Hollywood lore. The film's animal trainer went looking for a blue-eyed camel to play the blind one described in May's script, and he found one in a Marrakesh market. But he chose not to buy it right away, believing that blue-eyed camels would be easy to find since this one had been so easy to find, and he wanted to attempt to start a bidding war to make sure he got a really good deal. Well, fun fact... Blue-eyed camels are not something you can procure all willy-nilly anywhere in the world. And when the trainer realized this and went back to buy the camel from the market guy, the camel had been eaten by him and his family. 
Another infamous incident, though it has been disputed by others whom worked on the film if it ever actually happened, revolved around concerns about sand dunes in a scene where a lost Beatty and Hoffman would be filmed. Dunes in the United States and Morocco had been scouted, but none seemed to fit May's vision, who, it turns out, was not a desert person. She took extensive precautions to shield herself from the desert sun. This included her not only taking shelter under a large umbrella, but also wearing large sunglasses and wrapping her face in a white veil, with the look ultimately being compared to a stormtrooper. But... Anyway, after unsuccessful searches for satisfactory sand dunes, May decided out of the blue that she wanted a flat landscape instead. It allegedly took 10 days and 11 bulldozers to level an area of a square mile to be able to shoot under these conditions. As production ramped up, May began fighting with other people on the set too. Beatty had made good on procuring her the best of the best, but that had its downsides as well. Beatty had managed to hire cinematographer Vittorio Serraro, who he'd worked with on Reds and whom had also shot Apocalypse Now and Last Tango in Paris. You can probably guess, based on that resume, he was a very strange pick for a comedy, and that led him and May to just full-out brawl with each other. The two disagreed on pretty much everything, including camera placements, as she wanted more comedic framing, while Serraro, who had little experience shooting comedies, wanted the most ideal image composition. Beatty reportedly often took Serraro's side in these disputes between him and May, leading to May, according to Hoffman, likely feeling ganged up on. Storaro would reportedly be found in his off time at the local Italian restaurant he'd found, dressed the nines and bitching about his director. All of this led to Beatty and May starting to fight more and more with Hoffman, oftentimes serving as a mediator. He was getting a little frustrated because May had just up and stopped directing him and he hoped that cooling the tensions between Beatty and May would fix that. Further, Hoffman claimed that there were times when the two were not speaking to each other at all. Then, May's growing hostility with Ajani was also causing some trouble in paradise between her and Beatty. When it comes down to it, May's inexperience with a film of this scale was becoming all too apparent. This was a very far away from the indie film she'd done and her stage experience, and this very big jump had clearly shaken her up. For example, if there was a question she didn't know the answer to, she'd often just blow it off. And you can't really do that. Directors are supposed to be the people with the answers. She also remained distant from the film's editing staff, taking copious notes during daily screenings, but refusing to share them with her editors. And this is just incredibly weird to me because this is a super important thing to do if you want your editors to assemble a version of your film that you want. Typically, when a director watches dailies with their editor or editors, they'll tell them which takes or takes they like best from each angle. So that's the ones the editors can prioritize when they're cutting. May didn't do that. She took notes and then just wandered off with those notes and oftentimes lost them. Soon, due to the production's remote location, they began running out of writing implements and paper. Eventually, the associate editor tied May's pencil to her clipboard and the clipboard to her chair so she couldn't just run off with it. At the end of one screening, she reportedly ran off after her DP, clipboard in hand, dragging the chair behind her. 
Additionally, one of Columbia's fears was coming true. May was shooting a ton of film, reportedly in one instance, shooting 50 takes of vultures, landing next to Beatty and Hoffman. Another, though very likely fake story from the set, involves a snake charmer who walked into the production office in Marrakesh one day with a dead cobra. He burst into tears as he recounted how filming so many takes for May in the hot sun had led to the cobra having a heart attack and dying. He wanted $2,500 for his dead cobra, but settled for 150. And of course, with shit like this happening, the movie started getting real spendy because no one, certainly not Beatty, was really telling May no. Any of this sounding familiar? Another story included an instance where a replacement part was needed for a camera and it was sent over to Morocco with a New York-based location coordinator instead of them just shipping it out of fear it might get lost or held up at customs. The coordinator's airfare and hotel stay were paid for by the production. I don't have to tell you that is infinitely more expensive than throwing something in the mail even for international mail. Everything came to a head when it came time to shoot the film's battle scenes, something May apparently wanted to improvise. This probably goes without saying, but you can't do that for a myriad of reasons, big one being safety. May was a comedian and an improver. Action sequences just weren't in her wheelhouse. It's not a bad thing. It's just a fact. It's something you have to learn. She had never done that in her line of work. This tension ended up leading to an epic fight between her and Beatty, with May ultimately shouting at him, quote, you want it done, you shoot it. On any other film, the director very likely would have been fired for that outburst at his or her producer. But Beatty knew that taking over at this juncture wouldn't save the film, and that if he would have had to finish directing the project, it would cause a major embarrassment for everyone involved, and given that his main objection from day one in all of this was to give May a chance she never had, so he ended up just compromising by scaling back the battle scenes. There was, there was no good option option in this particular case. Ultimately, both Beatty and May began to realize that they'd made a mistake. Quote, I was going to give this gift to Elaine and it turned out to be the opposite, Hoffman recalls Beatty telling him. When the film relocated to New York just before Christmas 1985, having done 10 weeks of shooting in Morocco, but they did not, they, they did not finish what they were supposed to be shooting. Now stateside, Beatty told then-Columbia CEO Faye Vincent that they had a problem. May could not direct. Beatty rebuffed Vincent when he told him to fire May, citing his image as a supporter of women's rights and how that would take a hit if he fired a woman from a movie. Vincent then said that he would fire May, but Beatty said that if he did that, he and Hoffman would leave the film. Beatty instead proposed that every scene be shot twice, his way and May's way, effectively doubling the movie's cost in the process. The New York scenes were shot in early 1986, and due to union work rules, the crew had to be doubled by a local standby crew who were rarely needed but got their full day rate for the entire shoot regardless. Production also had to be shut down for a few days so Beatty and Hoffman could learn their songs. Production ultimately wrapped in March 1986. 
A month later, Vincent fired McElwain. His replacement as head of production was David Putnam, a longtime critic of Hollywood budgetary excess. During a nasty Oscars race between Chariots of Fire, which had been produced by Vincent, and Beatty's Red, Vincent had said in the press that Beatty should be quote-unquote spanked for going over budget on Reds. Further, Vincent had also publicly criticized Hoffman for allegedly using his star power to force rewrites on the 1979 film Agatha, which led to Hoffman's minor character being promoted to a lead one. After quitting as a producer on that film, Putnam called Hoffman, quote, the most malevolent person I have ever worked with. So this guy now taking over while a Beatty and Hoffman picture was having a problematic time in post was not welcome news to anyone. But due to his history with both of its stars, Putnam promised to stay out of Ishtar's post process. While this looked like, you know... A, 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 a compromise. Beatty and Hoffman felt that this was done to low-key undermine the film and also to keep any responsibility on how it did at the box office off of his hands. The Bad Blood, born in Morocco, continued to thrive in post-production as well. May was supposed to direct actors when they did their ADR for their lines, but sometimes left the job to Beatty or one of the editors, and sometimes she just didn't show up to work at all. Most of those absences were, unsurprisingly, for sessions with Ajani, who was required to lower her voice since the character had to pass as a boy for most of the film. This strained her relationship with Beatty even more. The film's raw footage before editing was about 108 hours, which is about three times more than is the average for a comedy. As a result, three teams of editors, one for Beatty, one for Hoffman, and one for May, worked almost nonstop to produce cuts of the film to each person's liking. Again, three editing rooms means three editing room salaries, so, you know, up, up, up goes the budget. Beatty eventually gave in and let May cut the film her way because he hated Putnam and believed he was leaking negative information about Ishtar to the media. Quote, just tell that asshole to keep paying the bills, he is reported to have told another Columbia executive. Eventually, it became clear that the film would not be ready in time for its original Christmas 1986 release. When the new release date of late spring 1987 was announced, stories in the media about the film's troubles just amplified. Industry insiders began to refer to it as The Road to Ruin and also Warren's Gate after our friend from last week, Heaven's Gate. Beatty, who had kept the media off the set during production, took these stories personally. Despite his agreement to let May do her thing, he and May began to fight more frequently in the editing room. Finally, with the new release date looming, Burt Fields, aka a real grown-up, and May and Beatty's agent, if you forgot, came in as a mediator to just calm everybody down. Beatty denies that this happened, but based on the recollections of others close to the film, it, it, it happened. The agent has been credited as being the one who actually had final cuts, although he claimed that it was actually May's final cut. Probably a mixture of both. Tensions did continue as Beatty was trying to defuse Ajani and tried to add more footage of her into the film. When they were mercifully finished editing, the editors were furious as no one had gone over the complete film and Beatty refused to show it to Putnam. Like last week's film, rumors about Ishtar and its outrageous budget and the behavior of its two stars and the director was blasted in the press long before the film ever reached theaters. In an interview with Elaine May, director Mike Nichols described the situation as, quote, the prime example that I know of in Hollywood of a studio suicide, further implying that Putnam had very, very likely been the one leaking the stories about Ishtar into the press. 
Before Ishtar's release, market research led Columbia to believe that the film was going to bomb. As a result, Columbia's head of marketing advised the studio to minimize its losses by cutting the film's advertising budget. Instead, they tripled down and spent even more money to promote the film, afraid that if they had tried to cut it or any of the like, they would alienate Beatty and Hoffman. Despite all the negative press, three previews of the film before its release actually went well. Audiences responded very positively to it. Because of this, Beatty began trying to negotiate more prints to be made of the film because, press be damned, this movie was going to be a hit. Any notions of Ishtar being a box office success were dashed after its opening weekend on May 15th, 1987. The film, which had opened on more than a thousand screens across the country, took in a paltry $4.3 million in receipts. While this wasn't a bad opening at this time, and it was number one at the box office that weekend, it only beat a starless low-budget horror film by 100 k That ain't a good look. Ultimately, Ishtar only grossed $14.3 million domestically, which had barely recouped the cost to hire May, Beatty, and Hoffman. When all was said and done, Ishtar reportedly lost Columbia Pictures a reported $40 million. As a result of this, the name Ishtar has since become synonymous with the term box office bomb. But not everyone believes that Ishtar got a fair shake. Chicago reader critic Jonathan Rosenbaum believed that the media were eager to shit on Ishtar in retaliation for Beatty acting quote-unquote high-handed when it came to dealing with them at all. Since the filming had been completely shut out to the media, kind of like what had happened on Heaven's Gate, the media was once again acting out about it. Specifically, Rosenbaum points out the, the actions of Siskel and Ebert. Quote, he was really getting them irritated and using them as the butt of all these jokes. If you start multiplying that in terms of the treatment of a lot of other people in the press, Ishtar was their one chance finally to get even. And in doing this, Beatty learned the hard way not to bite the hand that feeds. As a result of the losses it suffered from Ishtar and the negative publicity, Coca-Cola reevaluated its decision to enter show business. Ultimately, it spun off its entertainment holdings into a separate company called Columbia Pictures Entertainment, and Vincent and Putnam were fired within months of Ishtar's release. Columbia was sold to Sony two years later, whom owns it to this day. Ishtar was nominated for three Golden Razzies, an award show quote-unquote celebrating the worst in film, and Elaine May won Worst Director that year. Ishtar was also nominated for Worst Picture at the 1987 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. When the Stinkers unveiled their 100 Years 100 Stinkers list to list the 100 worst movies of the 20th century, Ishtar was number 20. The film's failure didn't affect the friendship between Beatty and Hoffman, who both claimed that they actually liked the final cut of the film. The two would work together again in Beatty's Dick Tracy film that he did for Disney in 1990. Beatty and May barely spoke for two years, and people close to her say that she remains bitter about the entire experience. In fact, it was nine years before she had another screenwriting credit for 1996's The Birdcage. Two years later, she was nominated for an Oscar for writing 1998's Prime primary colors. May, unsurprisingly, has not directed a film since Ishtar, though in 2019 it was announced that May was set to direct her next film. Little is known about the project other than its title, Crackpot. In May of 2022, so just a few months ago, the now 90-year-old May was awarded an honorary Oscar, recognizing her, quote, bold, uncompromising approach to filmmaking as a writer, director, and actress. Now, 
the big question. Is Ishtar as bad as everybody claims it is? I will say it's by and large a very dry humored movie and more than a little awkward in spots. I don't think Warren Beatty pulls off the bumbling shy guy, which, you know, kind of dampens the film because he's one of the leads. And I mean... (sighs) He's Warren Beatty. It's hard to gauge, like, in the film, like, when he's got lines like, oh, I'm not very attractive. It's like, dude, you're Warren Beatty. We have eyes. And his delivery, like, he wasn't even convinced in the character. Like, he's just like, oh, I'm unattractive. It's like, you don't even believe what you're saying. So the audience isn't going to believe it. So, you know, his performance, not great. He does the bumbling thing okay, but barely. Also, Beatty and Hoffman were both pushing 50 when the film was made, and the plot of the film I don't think works much because of this. They definitely should have cast a touch younger if they wanted to tell a story about two unsuccessful hustling songwriters. It just, instead of like making them be like, oh, it's never too late for your dreams come to come true, the level of like naivete that they were playing with everything, and just looking at like two full-grown men being that naive about something, it, w- it I know it was supposed to be funny. It came off to me as sad. It, it was more more sad than it was funny, which is not something you want if you're doing a comedy. The editing <laughs> is also not great, but that's likely due to a too many cooks situation. Story's fine, not life changing, but it's fine. It's certainly not at the level of horrible critics claimed it to be. Other than that, I do not think this was a bad movie. It's watchable. It is very funny in spots. And I, I mean, I've seen far worse things than Ishtar. So did it get a fair shake? In my opinion, absolutely not. Despite the 35 years that have passed since its release, time has not healed Ishtar's reputation. In a far side comic strip captioned Hell's Video Store, the entire store in the comic is stocked with nothing but copies of Ishtar. The comic's author later apologized once he actually saw Ishtar and liked it. In fact, Ishtar has received a wave of positive reviews and retrospectives, especially after it was released in 2013 on Blu-ray. Further directors, including Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright, have publicly praised Ishtar, and Martin Scorsese has said that it is one of his favorite films. And to this day, the film's creators still stand up for it. Beatty has stated that Ishtar is, quote, a very good, not very big comedy made by a brilliant woman, and I think it's funny. Dustin Hoffman has also vouched for Ishtar, saying, quote, I liked that film. Just about everyone I've ever met that makes a face when the name is brought up has not seen it. I would do it again in a second. And of course, when it comes to the film's legacy, Elaine May has put it best. Quote, if all of the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a rich woman today. We were happy while I was working in the gas station. Mm-hmm. We had a nice little house, a nice little garden. I'd come home in the evening and write songs. Willow would she'd quilt. And, and uh, then the tire factory opened, and overnight the population shot up about 35,000. Wow, can you stand and, up a second? You're sitting on my time. So I said to Willow, I said, look, uh, we got to go to New York or, or Nashville, because those are the only two places to be if you want to sell songs. Mm-hmm. That's how come... We came to New York. Mm-hmm. What a smuck I was. Schmuck. It's not smuck. It's schmuck. Smuck. Schmuck. Smuck. Now say shh. Shh. Now say muck. Muck. Now say shh and muck together real fast. Smuck. Closer. You really know the lingo. 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. I've been bad about that the last few weeks. I'm going to put them all up today at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got to buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee so I can stay up late and write. I've also got some merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, another director going crazy on location as we discover the chaos that was the production of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. 